Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our text begins, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts. The people, we learn, were expecting the Christ, and that expectation was exacerbated by the presence of Rome. The Christ, the Messiah, they thought, would be a king like David who would rule from Jerusalem. He would ride out at the head of armies and defend the people. And that level of expectation is evident in the number of pretenders that arose in that day. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel tells us about Thutis, who rose up and claiming to be somebody in the 400 men who followed him. But he was killed, and it came to nothing. And then at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He too perished, and his followers were scattered. We all expect any number of things, right? Second graders expect recess. High school seniors and college seniors expect graduation. Expectant mothers, well, the name kind of explains that one. Expectations can be both positive and negative, though. We have to acknowledge the glass-half-empty side of the question as well. But the point here is that Epiphany is a season about the end of expectations, about revelation, finding the expected one. Not all, but one very specific and one very important one. The answer to the people's expectations, finding the Christ season to recognize and to acknowledge the deity of the child who was born in Bethlehem. Last week, the revelation came by a star that rose, and by the citation from Micah chapter 5, out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. It came by the Magi who journeyed to Jerusalem and followed the star to the place where Mary and the child were. This week, there are three more witnesses, three more epiphany agents, if you will. There's John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, and the voice from heaven. John's witness begins with a strong denial. I am not the Christ. No, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier, who is stronger than I, is coming. Jesus himself claims that title in Luke chapter 11. When challenged about his casting out demons, he responds, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one who is stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him and takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Cyril of Alexander, commenting on that text, wrote, Before the coming of the Savior, he, that is Satan, was in great power, driving and shutting up in his own stall flocks that were not his own but belonged to God above. He was like some ferocious and insolent robber. And since the word of God who is above all, the giver of all might and the Lord of power attacked him, having become man, all his goods have been plundered and his spoil divided. Jesus is the true God, mightier than John, stronger than Satan. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, when does that actually happen? Well, in Luke 12, Jesus tells the disciples, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's alluding to the wrath that would consume the world. 
wrath that will be absorbed by him in his baptism with fire, wrath on the cross, all of which he endured for you. Jesus' death and resurrection set the stage for the church's baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire at Pentecost, when the flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward, to borrow from Garrison Keillor. So in the words of prophecy, John bears witness to the deity of Jesus. The second witness is the Holy Spirit, whose appearance seems only a bit part, right? There are no lines, just one entrance. The heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The language is reminiscent of Genesis 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And Ambrose is typical of other church fathers who also hear in this phrase a connection to Noah and the ark and the dove and the olive branch. He writes, the grace of the washing requires peace, as in an earlier image of the dove brought to the ark that which alone was inviolable. He of whom the dove was the image taught me that in that branch, in that ark, was the image of peace and of the church. In the midst of the floods of the world, the Holy Spirit brings his fruitful peace to its church. Close quote. That we might have that peace, the Holy Spirit first descends and anoints Jesus there at the Jordan. His title is sealed. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ. And by this, God begins his recreation of the entire world. The messianic age begins with the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the dove, the olive branch are all foreshadowing of the peace that is ours in baptism. And the third witness is the Father. His words are the climax of our text. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father uses the very same words he's used in Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. But even more poignantly, the words of Genesis 22, words spoken to Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Take your beloved, which foreshadows my beloved son. You know the story. Abraham and Isaac go to Moriah, and with the wood on the back of the younger, and the knife and the fire in the hands of the older, they go up the mountain. Father, the younger asks, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? The sacramental overtones of that day now come to fruition. The substitutionary atonement foreshadowed in the ram who was caught in the thicket who dies in the place of Isaac. Now the perfect and final lamb is here. And this time, the Father will not withhold the knife. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hence, Jesus receives the Father's approval. He is well pleased. Why? Well, because he does the will of the Father. The past tense goes back to the moment when God selected his Son for this redemptive work. And when the Son accepted that work, the event belongs to the mystery of the Trinity. In a time before time, 
and hence something we cannot know. But we hear its echo. With you, I am well pleased. So we have three witnesses to the deity of Jesus, the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. And so also we have three takeaways from the Jordan this morning. First, Jesus is Emmanuel. That is God with us on the cross. The cross foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 22 becomes the import of our epistle lesson this morning. As Paul writes to the Romans, Do you not know that of all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There, on the cross, Christ died. And there also died the old Adam and the old Eve in each of us. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Paul writes. There your sins were atoned for. You are forgiven, which also means God with us in the crosses of daily life. Whatever the afflictions we may face, fractured discs, trouble at work, nagging doubts leading to depression, the car bill, the light bill, the grocery bill, the final bill, barely passing grades, substandard work, feeling of unaccomplishment and failure. The newness of life, to borrow Paul's expression, admits our troubling circumstances this side of heaven. Isabel Wilsley wrote, My husband came down from the attic for another load of decorations. Haven't you finished packing the manger yet, he asks? I think we'll just leave it up this year, she answered. Sometimes the world seems out of control and Christmas seems so far away. When it does, we can look at the mantle and remember that God is with us and that he'll make good on his promise of peace. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is our assurance. He's with us in the flood. And second, Jesus is Emmanuel and is God with us from the grave. Again from Paul, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love the language of the Messiah, especially that base recitative, behold, I tell you a mystery. Handel's text is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, and the text is really all about those who will still be alive when Christ returns, but musically, the climax of the peace comes with these words. The trumpet shall sound. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. Be raised incorruptible. Be raised incorruptible. Our broken and battered bodies will be perfect. Earlier in chapter 15, Paul refers to Christ as the first fruits from the dead. Well, the first fruit is the pledge, the guarantee of a full harvest. And that harvest is our hope, the joyful anticipation of a reunion with all the saints who've gone before. The other half of the church, if you will, as our liturgy insists as we sing with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. And third, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us in baptism. We can only say that because Jesus was baptized. As Luther writes in his famous flood prayer, through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all water to be a blessed flood and a lavishing washing away of sin. An earlier church father asked this question, 
What sort of baptism is this? When the one who is dipped is purer than the font, and where the water that soaks the one whom it has received is not dirtied but honored with a blessing. What sort of baptism is this of the Savior, I ask, in which the streams are made purer than they who purify? For by a new kind of consecration, the water does not so much wash Christ as submit to being washed. When someone wishes to be baptized in the name of the Lord, it is not so much the water of this world that covers him, but the water of Christ that purifies him. Close quote. The waters of Epiphany reveal Jesus as very God, a very God. They reveal the divine plan of salvation, and in their waters you are baptized, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit declare, you are mine. You are my child. The second Sunday of Epiphany brings, begins with expectations. Expectations for the Christ. Expectations answered by John and by the Holy Spirit and by the Father. This man, born of Mary, is true God. But expectations answered are not the end of expectations. It's the beginning of life in Christ's kingdom. And there are new expectations to be identified and fulfilled. Love toward God and service toward our neighbor. In all of them, we remain confident because Jesus is God with us on the cross, from the grave, and in baptism. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.